Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unseen Beings, a brand new podcast where we explore the wonders and the perils of the more than human world. My name is Eric Champa Anderson, and I'm the author of Unseen Beings How We Forgot the World is More Than Human, published by Hay House UK, which will be available everywhere on May 30th, 2023. This book is a call to action. Climate anxiety has left so many of us feeling hopeless and confused, but by cultivating a sense of natural enchantment and authentic kinship with the many creatures around us, we can help to create a brighter future on this planet and recover a sense of what it really means to be human in a more-than-human world. You've heard all of the hard-hitting data, you've seen the documentaries, but what will it truly take for humanity to change? We very much cannot tackle climate change with data alone. We need new stories, new ways of seeing and thinking, and a better understanding of the presuppositions that we bring to the table when approaching environmental concerns. In this deep dive through history, myth, philosophy, science, and religion, I try to uncover and illuminate the complex and vital relationships that we have with the sentient beings around us, and to explore how the construction of a human-centered world most crucially inspiring new approaches on our path to recovery. This book is really a kind of confluence of many different streams of influence that have guided me and impacted me throughout my life. I've been studying and practicing Tibetan Buddhism for 20 years, receiving specialized training in Tibetan Buddhist ritual arts, and I also completed a classical education in Tibetan medicine, studying the entirety of the Gyushi, the four tantras of Tibetan medicine, which have been guiding the tradition for over 800 years. I've always been particularly interested in Tibetan Buddhist spirit paradigms and the ways in which Tibetan and Himalayan peoples have thought about and engaged with the more-than-human world. Beings like the Lu and the Nyen in the Gyalpo, Mamo, Teurang, etc. These beings are very prominent both in the Tibetan medical tradition and also in my own practice lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, which is known as Chud. These beings, which we might think of as so-called nature spirits, were the original unseen beings that I sought to write about in this book. But as my research developed and as my own relationship with other kinds of beings, especially plants, deepened, I began to realize that there are a great many more unseen beings who are unseen not because they're invisible or supernatural, but because we have unseen them, because we have failed to acknowledge their beingness, their personhood. We can look directly at some of these beings without ever recognizing that they might be looking back at us. Plants were a big part of this for me because as a Tibetan medicine practitioner and someone who practices plant medicine, I primarily related to these beings as a kind of resource, a wondrous, healing, sacred resource, but a resource nonetheless. But as my research deepened and I began encountering fields like plant neurobiology, I began to realize that plants are people too. <laughs> plants have their own sensory experience. They are embodied beings who are very much our cousins. They're our kin. Uh, we are distantly related to all plants, all fungi, all other forms of life on this earth. 
And the science has led us to very interesting conclusions. The works of individuals like Stefano Mancuso, Monica Gagliano, but also research into microorganisms, single-celled organisms, and their innate brilliance, their innate intelligence, have led many researchers to the conclusion that all life can be categorized as information processing organisms, beings who are fundamentally aware, fundamentally conscious of their experience, regardless of how different that experience might be to our own. Of course, these discoveries are only novel for modern Western cultural and scientific traditions. For the vast majority of our human history, most cultural traditions have identified non-human animals, plants, etc. as being conscious-minded non-human persons. This is, of course, a dominant feature of so-called animistic worldviews, which predate other religious and spiritual constructs by at least many tens of thousands of years. This naturally led me to wonder why we abandoned this in most Western philosophical and cultural traditions. In essence, how did we forget that the world is more than human? And in some ways, the answers were quite surprising and closely aligned with the story of how certain human societies came to dominate, exploit, and ultimately destroy much of the so-called natural world. And I say so-called because this really gets to the heart of the issue. What I hadn't fully appreciated is that outside of European cultural and philosophical traditions, most human societies across the world and throughout time have not shared our basic idea about a bifurcation of human culture and non-human nature. The idea that nature is this thing that we can point to outside of ourselves as a unified domain of non-human beingness, which is an eternal opposition to the human, is a unique cultural construct with its own discrete history. And along with that notion, the construction of so-called nature, we of course have the construction of the so-called anthropos, the human, a distinct kind of being which is different from an animal or a plant, or any of the other organisms with whom we share this world. The separation, the sundering of humanity from nature, and the elevation of humans to the superior position of the divinely rational anthropos is a giant part of the reason that we have fallen into our current climate emergencies. Which, of course, are not new things. Humans have been changing and impacting our climates for many, many thousands of years. All beings, in fact, impact their environment. None of us are an island, as it were. And even the massive, wide-scale climate disruptions that typify the so-called Anthropocene are not new things. We didn't just start changing the climate 70 years ago. We didn't even start changing the climate with the dawn of industrialization. If you look at the history of colonization itself, you can see that for well over 500 years, Western European powers have been seeking to dominate, exploit, and oppress the non-human world, and also to suppress and silence and to colonize non-dominant cultural traditions which have a different perception of our place within so-called nature. Time and time again, we've attempted to silence and suppress and delegitimize indigenous voices and other ways of being in the world. 
strictly in pursuit of dominion and colonial expansion, but we've done so under the premise that such ideas are illogical and irrational and primitive. But what science has shown us, especially in the past 20 years, but not even just that, that they were always far closer to what we ourselves deem to be empirically true. Our own point of view was the illogical, irrational one, the one that needs to be deconstructed. And despite our scientific advances, much of modern Western Euro-American society remains blinded by our anthropocentrism and a complete lack of reason. In Unseen Beings, I attempt to deconstruct our own irrational ideas about the non-human world, and to trace the historical development of our anthropocentrism all the way from ancient Greece, through the rise of monotheistic religious traditions, and all the way into the philosophical movements of the modern era. I talk about concepts of animal and plant sentience, nature spirits, gods, demons, and even the rise of the figure of the devil. But of course, as a Buddhist and a specialist in Asian studies, I've always been interested in how non-European traditions, especially so-called advanced societies such as those found in ancient India, have grappled with some of these same questions. And Buddhism really presents a very interesting case, because in contrast to a number of other religious and cultural traditions in ancient India, including Jainism and also the Vedic tradition, the Buddha seems to have asserted that plants, for instance, are not sentient beings, that they have no internal conscious domain and no capacity for sensory experience. And understanding why he came to this conclusion can actually teach us quite a bit about the ways that our own values and our own, in some ways, obsessions with being good can blind us to deeper nuances and very serious conversations regarding ethics. Knowing what we know now, it's quite unavoidable that from a theoretical Buddhist perspective, plants must be accepted as non-human sentient beings, and therefore our relationships with them must be understood not only in the context of utility, but also on moral grounds. But this recognition is quite radical, and it forces us to question our own perception of our goodness, and it changes the terms of what it means to be a good person, what it means to be nonviolent, what it means to engage with the other persons around us in a mindful and compassionate way. Now, as you'll see in the book, the Buddha's own views on this matter were probably much more complex and nuanced, but this process in Buddhism closely mirrors in certain ways the kinds of ethical renegotiations that we made in Western philosophical traditions as well. Our moral paradigms tend to arise out of our values to justify our modes of existence. And we quite like to think of ourselves as being good. So if a particular practice or behavior is difficult for us to avoid, then we have a tendency to perceive that activity as being morally inconsequential and finding different kinds of philosophical and cosmological paradigms to secure our goodness in what may very well be a difficult and sticky world. Now, I argue in the book that our anthropocentrism and our fundamental divide between humans and nature is at the philosophical core of our climate crisis. 
Without that, we wouldn't have the same dynamics of exploitation, of destruction, of dominance that are so prominent in our cultural traditions today. But the problem is that both sides of the equation in modern conversations surrounding environmentalism, climate change, sustainability, etc., they tend to both be mutually rooted in the same fundamental understanding, the same fundamental cosmology, the same idea that humans are separate from nature, and that nature is primarily composed of resources intended for human consumption. When we talk about saving nature, we are still talking about exercising our supreme human agency to impact and control the non-human world. When we talk about sustainability, we're talking about sustaining and prolonging dynamics of exploitation, rather than challenging and undermining the basic philosophy underlying them. By turning our sights to non-human, unseen beings, we can remind ourselves to stay with the trouble, as Donna Haraway says, to stay with the violence, to recognize that our relationships with non-human beings and non-human environments have historically been quite violent, and that violence is in many ways intrinsic to our mode of being as animals on this earth. However, if we can fully accept and embrace the personhood of non-human beings, including the personhood of animals, of trees, of forests, of lakes and rivers and mountains, of the earth itself, then we can negotiate different ways of engaging so that we can cause as little harm as possible in pursuit of the resources that we need to survive. Unseen Beings argues for a relational approach, not an ethical or moral approach per se, but one that fully embraces the dynamic and complex interpersonal dynamics that have always existed between human and non-human beings. In essence, this book attempts to diagnose as best as I can, our current chronic ecological disease, to flesh out the underlying causes and conditions that gave rise to it, to illustrate our prognosis, to look at where we're heading and how some of our current crises are integrally related to the overall climate catastrophe, and ultimately to prescribe a kind of course of treatment, which is one that involves imagining and co-creating new ways of being and new ways of existing in the world. Things like art and storytelling and mythology are indispensable therapies on our path of recovery. We need far more than facts and figures to make sense of the challenges that we're facing, because the world itself is comprised of far more than facts and figures. The Amazon rainforest, with its humans and animals and plants and fungi and microbes, they're not just data points. They're storied and minded beings. They're our kin with whom we have relationships, both deep and oftentimes quite volatile. And we need stories. We need mythology. We need a deeper and more embodied understanding of our place in the world to be able to transform our relationships with them, to transition from a dynamic of exploitation and dominance to one of authentic, compassionate, and mindful relationship. And in many ways, we have to begin by acknowledging and appreciating the humans that have lived in these environments for many, many thousands of years, who have engaged in very different ways of living for the entirety of their existence. We tend to sort of tokenize indigenous worldviews to allow their beliefs to be respected and spoken about in a, a very positive way. But 
it's very rare that we go beyond the acknowledgement of beliefs or fancy ecocentric folklore. We treat these as ideas and not knowledge, and that's a really major problem. Indigenous peoples remain on the front lines of resistance movements, fighting against pipelines and deforestation and pollution and industry, but we still regard their ways of living as being fundamentally whimsical and alternative, not rooted in science. If we want to know about climate change and about environmental destruction, we look only to the scientists. We look only to white men in lab coats predominantly for information about what's wrong and what we should do to fix it. But the problem has never been strictly scientific. Scientists can do a great deal to demonstrate the, the symptoms that we're facing, but they can't really do so much to explain how those symptoms came into being or what we can do to calm them. For this, we need far more sociological awareness. We need critical understandings of our various ecological constructs throughout history. We need to understand the dynamics of exploitation and the ways that we have justified exploitation in our philosophical and religious traditions. We we need artists to tell new stories, to guide us into different ways of seeing the world and imagining our future. And we very much need to listen to indigenous voices when they tell us that our instrumentalist view of nature is fundamentally out of step with their hard-earned expertise. So this is really what this book is about, and also this podcast. It's an attempt to dive deeper into the stories of the more-than-human world. I want to leave the old idea of nature behind and explore different cosmological and ecological paradigms, different ways of imagining our place in the world, and the roles and identities of non-human beings. So I'll be talking to a range of scholars and practitioners and experts in various different fields and disciplines about their own relationships with non-human beings, how they perceive their place in nature, and what their cosmological worldviews might offer in our current climate crisis. In essence, I want to see how different kinds of people have negotiated what it means to be human in a more-than-human world. So I hope you'll join me. Please subscribe and stay tuned for a new kind of conversation about our environment and our future in the bowels of the Anthropocene. A special thank you to my patrons at Patreon for supporting this work. I really appreciate it. And if you want to get involved or if you want to order your own copy of the book, please visit www.unseen-beings.com. Be well, and I'll talk to you soon.